So many years ago, uh, there was this man named Wesley who was <clears throat> who has been accredited to uh, kind of being the pioneer of the Wesleyan tradition or the Methodist tradition. So if you go around and you see uh, United Methodist or, or Free Methodist or any type of Methodist or Wesleyan church, oftentimes it's attributed to the theology and the work uh, of John Wesley. Uh, and I would say John Wesley is one of my favorite theologians. I read a lot of his stuff. Ne- I may not uh, identify as a Wesleyan or a Methodist, but John Wesley is someone I read uh, and enjoy very much so. Uh, and one of the quotes that I really ha- have appreciated and really had to ponder for a long time uh, is this. He says, the devil has given the church a substitute for faith. One that looks and sounds much like faith that few people can tell the difference. The substitute is mental assent. The substitute is mental assent. In other words, Christianity, what John Wesley is saying, uh, has become all about, or oftentimes much about, following particular, particular, as we said, doctrinal beliefs and statements playing by the rules, forgetting that uh, the rules were actually there and existed to point us to Jesus. But instead of uh, seeing that these rules point us to Jesus uh, and to God, we view these rules as God. And we become and we, and we believe this false notion that simply believing, whatever that means, quote, uh, unquote, believing in these rules alone will produce fruit, transformation, joy, wholeness, you know, true life with Christ. This is what it means when John Wesley talks about mental ascent. And the sad reality is Christians are more prone to mental assent than genuine worship. We may feel like or act like or tell others uh, in all these different ways that we're worshiping Christ, that we're doing this, we're following the Bible, and at the end of the day, you're not actually worshiping Jesus, you're actually falling into what John Wesley would call mental assent. That there is actually a division between your head and your heart. Because true worship is a connection of the two. And what John Wesley is saying, there's, this, uh, there's a devil that has given the church a substitute of faith. And it's so subtle. Because if you look around, if you look at other people, you don't know. And, and, and A, it's not our job to judge. But B, it's just hard to tell on the outside. And, and oftentimes I would say it's hard to tell even on the inside. And so there's a danger in mental ascent. This idea is that there's a disconnection between the head and the heart. And yet this is so dangerous. It's dangerous. The reality is that fruit and transformation, joy, wholeness, can only be in and through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. And not just the belief in that, because if you are a follower of Christ, if you identify as a Christian, you would often say, I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now where it disconnects is the next question that should follow is, then what does that mean to you? How does the life, death, and resurrection actually change your life? And and, and you may not be perfect just because you say you believe it, but it should compel you uh, to love differently, to live differently, to serve differently. And if it doesn't, you have to ask, is this worship? Or is this what John Wesley, again, would call a mental a sense, a mental ascent. Because the reality is, our life, our words, our beliefs, our faith should all be connected to one another. And the moment that there is a disconnect, 
John Wesley says that's the subtlety of the devil lying to us and, and actually deterring us from having genuine faith in Christ. And I would go as far as this. If you are a follower of Christ, if you do believe in the, in the creeds, if you believe in the scriptures, I will say this without apology. It should change your behavior. And I know a lot of times these days, and I've actually preached this myself, that uh, the Christian faith is not just about uh, behavior modification. And I will say this. I have the right to change my mind. And I have changed my mind, and I would say that as we have received and allowed the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, it should actually modify our behavior. It should. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should actually long for that. I'm not saying that is the sole thing that we're looking for, but it is a byproduct, a result of connecting what we say we believe, what we long after, to our actual life living out into the world. James chapter 2 uh, says this, and, and, when, uh, and the, when people were putting the Bible together and when Martin Luther, when he was doing uh, the whole Reformation period, he actually disliked the book of James, the letter of James, because it felt like it was too works-oriented. Remember the context that he was working in. And, and though that may be true, uh, it's clear that the scripture says your faith should actually result into fruits. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you do not have works? Can faith save you? Can faith alone save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. I mean, that's a very powerful statement. And oftentimes we don't want to hear that because oftentimes what we want to say is, well, bless your heart. Well, good job. Well, I'll be praying for you. If anyone, and I'm guilty of this, I'll be praying for you. Hey, this whole idea of, yes, I'll be praying for you is kind of our justification, our excuse to do absolutely nothing. Now, I don't, uh, again, diminish the power of prayer, but a power of prayer is a commitment to move. And, and oftentimes, we're really good at doing half of that, to say, hey, I'll pray for you. I'll be thinking about you. Yet forget that that is a commitment to be doing something on behalf of God and our love for humanity. And so when James says, uh, by faith itself, it has, uh, that house and works is dead, that's scary. And, and, and might I add, uh, if you're being honest with yourself, the moments that you say, I'll be praying for you, though that is a justification to do nothing, even that, how many times do we actually pray for that person? And again, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you're anything like me, oftentimes I'll say, I'll be praying for you. And I don't, if I'll be, I'll be honest. But, it says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, uh, and I by my works will show you my faith. I love verse 19. Do you believe that God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And shudder. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And so I love the connection between what John is doing and what's happening in James is that your faith should actually compel you 
to live differently. And in order to connect that a little bit better, let's look into this whole chapter in John chapter 9. It's important that we get into the text, that we actually know what's going on to, to really feel the gravity of what Jesus is saying. I love just right off the back in verse, uh, chapter 9 verse 2, it says, As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay, that's really important. When Jesus and his disciples were walking along, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his uh, parents, that he was born blind? See, notice that the disciples are so stuck in, in their ways. Uh, again, I, and I think sometimes the Pharisees and the disciples, they get kind of a bad rap because we call them self-righteous and legalistic. But at the end of the day, they were just trying to worship God the best they knew how. Obviously, they, they got just a little bit wrong here and there. And, and so when Jesus and his disciples were coming, there was Pharisees around. There was a blind man who the Bible says uh, very emphatically that this man was blind from birth. But because they were so stuck in their scriptures and their doctrinal statements and their customs, they believed there was only two possibilities of why this person was blind from birth. Because remember, we're talking about a very Jewish context with a very Jewish audience, with Jewish customs, uh, and with, Jew, with a Jewish worldview and a Jewish theology and a Jewish understanding of God. That was a lens that they worked in. And so there's two things that would come across every Jewish person when they saw a blind person or really any person uh, with a physical need or a challenge. Uh, the Torah says there could be two things. One, the Torah says there could be inherited sin. So this is a little bit different from original sin uh, with, with Adam and Eve, although you can make a case that, that might, this might debunk that. But all that to say is that there's two options, only two options, because that is what the customs and that is what the Torah says. Option number one, obviously, this person is blind from birth because his parents must have sinned. His parents must have done something, and according to Deuteronomy and Exodus and, and the Old Testament, that uh, a, a child or a person could inherit the sin of the parents. And if that child or person inherits the, 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 the sin of the parents, they also can receive the punishment of what that sin is. So option number one, either uh, you have inherited your parents' sin, or B, what the early church fathers would call a prenatal sin, which is the Talmud and the Mishnah, which is uh, like ancient Jewish writings. And what that says is this. It says that you must have sinned in your parents' womb. You must have sinned or done something wrong in your mother's womb. That is why you were born blind. Because you have to remember that this person was born blind. It does, so therefore, it would be kind of impossible that this blindness was a repercussion of a sin that this person did throughout this person's life. Obviously, that wasn't true because he was sinned from the moment he was born. And so there must be only one of two answers. Either it was a, a sin and a, and a consequence that was passed down from your parents, or you must have sinned, obviously, in the womb of your mother. But see, here's the bottom line. To the Pharisees who were looking around and saw this man who was blind, and even to the disciples, here's the bottom line, is that somebody needed to have sinned. Somebody needed to have done wrong. Either it was himself in the womb 
or it was his parents, and he received the repercussions of that. To these Jewish people that sees and was a witness to what was going on, it was the only way all of this made any sense at all. The answer must have been one of two is the only way that this whole God and their view of God and the world would make sense. And it was the only way that it would fit together in their understanding, again, of their laws, their rituals, the Torah, the mission of the Talmud, which is all part of their custom. And if anything contradicted any of these, their faith, their worldview, their understanding of God would be in complete jeopardy. I mean, have you ever felt that way in your own faith? Where you've believed something all of your life, and the moment that it was challenged, it was like the world of your faith just flipped upside down. And even out of desperation and even scarcity, maybe fear and anxiety, you say, no, 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 this is what the Bible says. And in the midst of saying all that, you kind of miss the entire point. And Jesus is saying, don't miss the point. I know that you're stuck in your customs and your ritual in your Jewish land, that for you, the only possibility is that either this man sinned in the womb or the parents sinned, but, but I want to offer a different answer. You can see the anxiety in this person's face. I remember when I was in uh, seminary many years ago, and I remember going into seminary uh, with a very legalistic attitude. Where probably just like these Pharisees and just like these devout Jews, I I would go in and I would have a somewhat of what people might call a literal interpretation of Scripture. If you have, there's nothing wrong with that, although sometimes there is a problem. Uh, And that was me. I brought in the Scriptures and, and I was so literal about the way I behaved, about the way that I did, because I really believed that my faith was should interpret the way I live. And of course, that is absolutely true. But we get to a point where we run into to words like self-righteousness and pride uh, and legalism. And, and admittedly, that's what I brought into when I was going into seminary. And, and so I got paired up with a roommate that I never met, I never knew. Uh, and he came from a very different church background and dynamic and, and even theological perspective, which, which is fine, which is all good. But I'll never forget the first week we were in seminary, and I look in the fridge, and lo and behold, what I see in the fridge, you might have been appalled just as much as I was. It was a six-pack of beer. And I told myself, what am I supposed to do? Here I am in seminary, and my beliefs and my conviction of what I understood Scripture to be was that if you are a Christian, obviously you can't drink. Right? Obviously, you can't drink. And so I was stuck in this conundrum saying to myself, do I talk to my roommate? Do I and, and, and insert every Christian you know, subculture word, like I need to keep him accountable. I can't have him stumble. I can't, you know, all these words. If you grew up around the church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And finally, I have enough guts to say, hey, roommate, friend, let's talk. You know, I was just worried about you. You know, uh, you may not believe this, and maybe this was a mistake, but I looked in the fridge this afternoon, and I saw some beer. And and I remember him looking at me with a state of confusion, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He responds, he says, Prentice, you know you can be a Christian and drink too. And I remember being so flabbergasted, like, what? 
Like, seriously, some of you, it's like, no, duh, you know, like, obviously that is true. For me, I was so stuck in my legalism, my self-righteousness, that I didn't connect the head and the heart. I didn't want to long to learn from other people's experience. I didn't think there was another experience. I just had my own experience, which was this, that the Bible says clearly, clearly that if you are a Christian, you should not drink. And although that may be true for some, uh, I couldn't even comprehend that wasn't true for everybody. And so he says, you can be a Christian and drink too. And I think about that story and I think about, hey, we all are guilty of being a bit pharisaical. And we're a bit guilty of being so pharisaical that we miss the point of what Jesus is trying to do in our lives. So you can see even through this that the Pharisees were practicing a a, a mental ascent. That what John Wesley was talking about. But here in verse 6 is where it gets a little bit more interesting. In verse 6 he says, he created uh, with mud or clay uh, from his saliva and dirt and rubbed it in his face. So like, I want you to kind of imagine what's, what's happening here. I think it's amazing that Jesus, there's Pharisees, uh, the, there's the Jews, his disciples. I want to learn from Jesus, who Jesus to them was rabbi. And they see a blind man, and they're trying to figure out why this man was blind from the day of birth. And obviously there's two options here. And Jesus kind of debunks this whole myth. Again, Christians can drink too. Demunks, debunks like everything that they have learned and grown up with. And the way that Jesus debunks it, he gets dirt. He spits on it. For those of you that are germaphobes like I am, this should like make you cringe, okay? So, so Jesus spits uh, and makes mud or some would say clay and out of his own saliva and dirt mixes it up and rubs it in the guy's face. And so a lesson here is if someone's ill, you just spit, get dirt, and rub it in their face, okay? Okay, actually don't, don't do that. Uh, unless you're Jesus. Uh, so he does this, and then suddenly Jesus says, then go to the pool of Siloam, wash it, and just see what happens. I think this is an incredible thing that's happening. So the person, the blind man, doesn't give a name, does that, washes it, comes back, and says, I can see. I can see. And what's happening here is that Jesus is being very, very audacious, but very subtle, too, that oftentimes, just reading through it, you might miss what's actually happening. So what's happening is that Jesus is emulating what the Jews and what they saw would understand completely is Genesis 1 and 2. It's a creation narrative. Jesus, in his own way, was retelling the creation story. The use of saliva, which is a personal substance like breath, mixed with dirt in order to create, was an imagery of Genesis 1 and 2. When it says that Jesus made uh, dirt or when Jesus made clay from saliva and from the mud, uh, when it says made, it's this word, Greek word, poeo. And poeo is translated as to create, just like the word in Hebrew is to create in Genesis 1, to create. 
And so what, what, uh, what John is doing, the writer is doing, is that Jesus was creating with a personal substance, with saliva and dirt, just like how God created the earth with his breath and with dirt. Adam and Eve, Poel. And so what Jesus was doing in his own way, again, was making a statement about himself, about his own divinity, about the Trinitarian relationship with God, the creator. The creator that the Jews knew as Yahweh. That's incredible. Even the blind man eventually had to confess that only God can do such a divine healing. How did this person get uh, healed from his blindness? How, How did this happen? It's a miracle. Or what's going on? And this person who was blind was saying and affirming what Jesus was stating with his actions, saying that there could be no other answer besides Jesus. This man is God. And, of course, the Pharisees missed the entire point. They missed the entire point because they were too busy going back to the laws and the rituals where it says a person cannot poeo, cannot create, cannot make on the Sabbath. And it was the Sabbath. And Jesus poeoed. He created. He worked. He made mud. And out of that mud made this man Healed with vision. So don't we do that? Oftentimes we simply miss the point in our own legalism, in our own ego, in our pride, in our self-righteousness. We forget what the commands are supposed to do. They're supposed to point us back to worship, following, loving, loving deeply the person of Jesus Christ and others. I remember when I was a chaplain at a juvenile detention center several years ago. And I was there and I saw many kids with just broken families, broken lives, just really terrible decisions. And I remember sitting down with a teenager. He may have been 13, maybe 14. He was in there for a pretty serious crime. And he was telling me that, you know, he wants to get his life right. Even in this juvenile detention center, he wants to uh, know Jesus. He wants to give his life and and become a Christian. And I said, you know what? All you got to do is pray. Just pray. Tell Jesus, you know, like how you feel and and that you love him and that you want to change your life. Just pray. And and the kid says, well, I I don't know how to pray. And I said, it's easy. Just speak from your heart. Just speak and just talk the way you need to talk. To talk to him like you're talking to a friend. He's like, are you sure? And I said, yeah, talk to him like your friend. Like, God, listen. It's okay. Be honest. This kid says, okay. And I pray with him. I bow my head and, you know, and he says, God, things are so beep, beep. Like, I mean, he starts going off with all these profanity. And I, like, looked at him. And, again, like, I wasn't sure if he was going to get struck by lightning or not. So I kind of move away a little bit. Like, this guy was, like, just genuinely speaking to God. And I remember, and I'll just confess this right now, I had a heart of such judgment. Because I'm like, part of me wants to say, okay, I know I said you can pray any way you want. But, actually, you're not allowed to pray that way. Obviously, I didn't say that out loud. But that's the way I was thinking. Because I missed the point. Because I was so stuck in my rituals and laws and all the things that I believe about the scripture, which oftentimes is skewed and, uh, and just wrong. And yet how many times 
have we done that to our faith, to Jesus? And I love the faith trajectory of this blind man. I love the kind of path that we see. The blind man, he goes from, I don't know. Well, who is this guy? And I really just thought about this, this emoji. If you guys are familiar, it's one of my favorite emojis. Uh, he says, prophet, question mark? Like, he looked just like this. I don't know. Is he a prophet? So he moved from this journey of, I don't know. And then in verse 33, he says, I know. Remember this whole idea of, uh, of knowing? He says, I know. Like, only God can do something like this. People are like, yeah, he's a sinner. He's this and that. And the guy's like, no, no, no. In fact, although I didn't know him, now I've seen what he's done, how he loves me, how he's changing my life, how he changed my life. I love that. He just says, you know what? You guys are asking me all these questions. Is he a sinner? Is he a bad person? Is he doing this? And his response was simply, I don't know. But what I do know is that he changed my life. I was blind, but now I can see. And something happened. He moves from, I don't know who this person is, to, ah, I know. I know. And then what we see is he moves from, I know, to I follow. Something about I know compels him to live differently, to follow, to worship. And I love these two words of to know. I've talked about this before, but the first word is gnosko. In the English, we just say no. Like, do you know him? Do you know that? Do you know your mother, your father? Do you know what the answer to this math problem is? Like, we only have one word. It's to know. But in the Greek language, there's multiple ways to know. But the two primary is this, gnosko, to have knowledge, to have information of. Okay, you may not know, you may not gnosko, you may not have a deep understanding or, or, or an intimacy of knowing, but you just have the information, whether it's about a thing or that person. Uh, like I can say that, and many of us, we've behaved this way the last few weeks, I can say that I gnosko Kanye, Kanye West, right? Anybody gnosko listen to his new album? No? no? Okay, wow, I'm speaking with the wrong crowd. Okay, so I'm like, man, I, I feel like I know his journey into his, his faith because, you know, like there's all this like Facebook posts and all these articles about Kanye and his, and his faith journey. So I'm like, I'm reading them. I'm like, okay, like I gnosko, I know about Kanye's, you know, struggles because what he's talked about is mental illness and all that. So I have that. I have knowledge. But I don't know him. Although I don't know if I would want to. Maybe I'm just being judgmental. Uh, or there's oida. So there's gnosko, which is all about information. And there's oida, which is about intimacy, full knowledge, realization. And, and so when this blind man is talking about uh, Jesus, he's saying, I do not oida. I do not know him in an intimate, in a deep, in a personal way. I don't know him. And then he moves to, I do not, so listen to this. Uh, as we wrap up, it's in chapter 9, verse 35 to 33, it says, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Because remember, at this point, he says, I don't know this person, this son of man, I don't gnosko, or I don't oida, I don't know this person. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, 
He's talking about himself. You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is, he said. Or speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And he worshipped him. What we have to see is when he says, you have seen him, you have seen him, is a Greek word, uh, horao. And a horao is just a different conjugation. It's the same word as oida. So at one very moment, he's saying, I don't oida. I don't know this man, Jesus. I don't know him. Uh, but then Jesus encounters him. He has a real conversion. He, he says he wants to follow. He wants to know. And Jesus shows himself to him and says, ah, now you have seen. You, now you, once you did not oida, you did not have a relationship. Now you do. And as a result of being seen and seeing Jesus, to know, not just see visually, but to oida, to now have this personal connection with Christ, he says, now I believe, and says, now he worshiped. He worshiped. He moves from, I don't know, to now I know, to now I follow. And I don't mean just sing songs like we do. We, I love singing songs here. I don't mean just show up to church. I don't mean uh, just doing all the spiritual practices. What I mean is with your life, do you not just know, but do you also follow? Do you also worship? And if we're being honest with ourselves, if you're like me, sometimes the answer is no. See, this person went through a serious process of spiritual formation. I love Helen Keller's quote, one of many. He says, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight with no vision. And Jesus makes it very clear that those who are really blind are the ones that have sight. The one who has sight is the one who is actually blind. So some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. I want to invite the worship team back up as we enter into a time of response and reflection. And all I want you to think about this morning is this. Does your head, does your knowledge, does your following of your rituals and customs and your understanding of the Bible, does it just sit there? Or or does it move you from I know to I follow? Does it move you, does your faith move you from I know to now I worship? And again, worship isn't just about singing songs, although I love singing songs. It's not just about uh, having your daily devotions also, daily, daily devotionals, even though that should be included. It means does what you know actually change your life. And maybe there's places in your life right now where you have to move from I know to I worship. Maybe for some of us it's I know I have to forgive, but I'm not going to. Maybe this morning it's time for you to say, I know I need to forgive, and so I will.
maybe oftentimes, you know, many of us, we're, we say, I know that it's good and we should be generous in giving to others. But this morning, yes, I commit to doing that. Maybe for some of us, it's, I know I have to have a better attitude. I know I have to love my spouse or my children or my neighbor or my friend. I know I need to love them better, to serve them, to listen to them, to give to them. And although many of us, we know that, maybe this morning we make the transition to not just, I know that, mental assent, but to actually do it, to live the words that we believe. Maybe some of us, we see that the world is broken. Just look around Seattle. We see homelessness. We see racism. We see systemic violence. We see hatred. We see racism. I mean, we see all the isms around here. And in our minds, we also believe that in the Bible says those isms are wrong. But maybe this morning is a time for us to move from I know it's wrong to I'm going to do something. As it says in James What good is it if you just know something? What good is it even if you just say it out loud? (laughs) Even the demons can do that. But this morning, it's about connecting our head to our hearts, to our hands, to our feet, to our mouth, to our tongue, to our eyes. And may this morning, may we transition from not just a gnoskos of Christ, but to oida, which compels us to live differently. Let's pray. God, thank you. May you love us. May we use that love. May we receive that love to love others. May everything you provide for us, the Bible, the experiences, the, the creation, the people around us, may that point us back to you. May that change our lives and forgive us for the places that it hasn't. God, help us to work on those little pockets where we need to move from I just know to I worship. Name those places in our lives. Convict us so that we can do nothing else but to be obedient and faithful and to move and move quickly and move with love and move with steadfastness. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in worship.